Acts chapter 4 is where we are today. Acts chapter 4, we're going to be, uh, we're actually going to cover the first 31 verses of Acts chapter 4, almost the whole chapter. So in Acts chapter 3, we, so we saw in Acts chapter 1, Jesus telling his disciples, go and wait in Jerusalem. They go and wait. Ten days later, in Acts chapter 2, we see the fullness of the day of Pentecost comes. The Spirit of God is poured out. And God sent his Spirit to be poured out on all flesh, which doesn't mean as much as we love our little animals. It's not our animals. All flesh means Jew and Gentile. Because before, the promise of God, the covenant of God was with the descendants of Abraham, or who we commonly call the Jews. You could become a Jew through conversion. You had to keep the law, you had to do all of these things, and you had to be identified as a Jew. But the promise of God in the Old Covenant by the prophets, specifically the prophet Joel, was that one day God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Not just prophets, not just priests, and not just kings, and not just the people of Israel, but all flesh. The Gentiles, the nations, young and old, rich and poor, slave and free, it didn't matter who you were. There was coming a day when God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh, and that day has come. That's what we saw in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 3, we see the church growing we saw that initial sermon preached by Peter in Acts chapter 2, and it says that 3,000 were saved that day. In Acts chapter 3, that begins by showing us that Peter and John were just innocently going to prayer one day in the temple. And as they happened to walk by, the guy that had been sitting there for decades, lame since birth, God draws the attention of Peter and John to this man. And this man looks at them thinking they're going to receive silver and gold. And what does Peter say? Silver and gold, I do not have, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. And he did, and a miracle took place. And it says that there was, by the end of that message that Peter preached as a result of the lame man being healed, another 2,000 were added to the church. And this is what we see as we come into Acts chapter 4. And we see that the gospel demands a response. And the gospel will always get a response. It might not be the response for life, but it will be a response. When the gospel is preached, we will either receive it or we will reject it whether we realize it or not. And so the gospel demands a response, and Peter commands these men of Israel to repent and to be converted, or to change your way of thinking and to change your way of life, your way of living. And repentance and conversion is a result of one being born again of the Spirit. And so Peter and John are there, they're preaching this sermon, and they cause a stir in the temple. Now let's read Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. This is where we'll pick up the story. Now as they spoke to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that the rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, 
rulers of the people and elders of Israel. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which, the, which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now is there salvation in any other, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the men who had been healed and standing with them, they could not say anything against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do with these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so it was, but so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak no to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus." But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to, of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Christ, the good news that is the power of God to salvation. And Father, we ask that you would take your word today and by the power of your spirit dwelling in us, mold us and change us, transform us and conform us to the very image of the Son that we would be a people filled with your spirit, driven by the wind of your spirit to go into this world and make known the good news of the gospel that men can be saved. Father, we ask that you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So here in Acts chapter 4, we pick up the story. So remember, when the Bible was written in its original form, there was no chapter marks and there were no verse marks. This, in fact, the book of Acts, what we call the book of Acts, which is properly titled the Acts of the Apostles, is actually a historical record that was written by Luke, the same Luke that wrote the gospel according to Luke. And Luke wrote Acts as a second part of this history of 
Jesus Christ, the gospel, and the birth of the New Testament church. Not the birth of the church, but the birth of the New Testament church. Because there's always been a church, there's always been a called out assembly of God's people. It was exclusively Jewish for centuries since Abraham was called of God. But the promise has always been, and we see this promise going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God tells the serpent that he will raise up a seed from the woman, and that seed, he uses the, the pronoun, he shall crush your head, even though you shall bruise his heel. So right there in Genesis 15 is the prophecy given to the serpent and to Adam and Eve, to mankind, because from Adam and Eve came all of mankind, Jew and Gentile. Here is this prophecy of the coming Savior who is Jesus Christ. And here in the book of Acts, we see God keeping His promise, pouring out His Spirit. The church is birthed. The New Testament church is birthed. And we see Peter and John here in the temple proclaiming Jesus. A notable miracle had been done, not because Peter and John planned it, but because God planned it. And through the working of that miracle, God brought the gospel to be preached there in the temple courts, and 2,000 men, in addition to the 3,000, were saved. And we see that when Peter and John are preaching, and the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, not to encourage them, but to stop them. It says in verse 2, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees, there were two main sects in Judaism at that time, Sadducees and Pharisees. And the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection, but the Sadducees did not believe there would be a resurrection. They didn't believe not just the resurrection of Jesus. They didn't believe there would be a bodily, physical resurrection. And the Sadducees were the, were the sect. They were the ones that were the ruling class. So when you hear, when you read about the Sanhedrin, those were Sadducees. So these guys really didn't like what Peter and John were preaching, not just because it was Jesus because they were talking about the resurrection. But here's something we need to realize. The preaching of the gospel must never be void of the resurrection, which means it can never be void and must never be void of the cross because there is no resurrection if there is no cross. And we like resurrection, right? We like the thought of being raised from the dead and living forever, but we sometimes don't like the thought of having to die. But here is the reality. It's appointed unto man to die once and then the judgment. Listen, we will all die. We must all die one way or another. If Jesus were to return right now, these bodies would die in a sense. They would put off the mortality and the corruption they are, and they would put on immortality and incorruption that God has promised. So one way or another, we're going to die. And God has established that the cross is the means by which we die. But when we die in the cross, being crucified with Jesus, we have a promise. And that promise is the resurrection. And not just a bodily resurrection, because if you are in Christ right now, you are in resurrection life. If you are in Christ right now, you have already been raised up in his life and in his resurrection. That's why I can say that if you are in Christ, you have already been saved. And you are being saved, and one day you will be completely saved because one day this body, this flesh, will put off its incorruption and put on, or put off its corruption and put on the incorruption of the glorified body that God has promised us. That Jesus demonstrated for us in his physical, bodily resurrection. So if there's no resurrection, there's no cross. If there's no cross, there's no resurrection. 
And if there is no cross and no resurrection, then there is no gospel. Because the cross is our means to die with Christ so that we may be raised with Him. And the proclamation of the gospel always demands a response. And that response can result in some people being greatly disturbed or it can result in some people being gloriously saved. Both happened here in Acts chapter 4. There were people greatly disturbed and there were people gloriously saved. When Peter and John preached the gospel, and that's what they preached, that is exactly what happened. And if we are properly preaching the gospel today, both of those things will happen. There will be people greatly disturbed, but there will also be people gloriously saved. This is why we can't be afraid to preach the gospel in its pure form as delivered to us by the inspired spirit Word of God. Because if we're trying to create another gospel, water down a gospel, trying to please men instead of just staying true to the word, we're going to end up having people upset, but no one gloriously saved. The Sadducees, not believing in a resurrection from the dead, were greatly disturbed. However, many of those who heard the word believed, around 2,000 men that day, That brought the total number of men in Jerusalem who believed immediately following Pentecost to about 5,000. And when the preaching and teaching of the gospel, men were being saved, disciples were being made, and the message of the gospel was spreading because of those who heard the gospel and their response in faith. So the gospel will always bring a response. It will either be a response of faith or a response of unbelief. The gospel carried forth and proclaimed establishes the kingdom of God and brings to nothing the kingdoms of men. This is important for us to understand. The world does not understand this, but we as believers should understand this. When we preach the gospel, whether it's from a pulpit or whether it's you on your job or you with your family or you just encountering by chance, some stranger, and you proclaim the gospel to them, you need to understand that the proclamation of the gospel is establishing the kingdom of God, and at the very same time, it is bringing to nothing the kingdoms of men. I believe as Americans, we should vote, and we should vote wisely. And we should vote based on biblical wisdom and understanding. And all that implies. But we should not for one minute think that our hope is in a government seated in a city somewhere with a particular letter or not in front of their name. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And we are bombarded with information and images that make us think that the kingdoms of this world are winning And we are losing because people are being persecuted all over the world. And now in modern Western first world countries, people are being arrested and fined for simply preaching the Bible. It's happening in England. It's happening in Canada. It's coming to a church in a neighborhood in a city near you very soon in America. It will happen. But that does not mean we're losing Because we cannot lose. Because every time the gospel is preached, the kingdom of God is is established and going forth, and the kingdoms of this world are being brought to nothing. Study history, and you will see that the gospel is alive and well on planet Earth. That's why we're here today talking about it. We can miss this truth that the gospel brings to nothing the kingdoms of men if we do not have eyes to see by faith the power and the promise of the gospel. The Sadducees were disturbed not because they had a different belief about the resurrection. They were disturbed because their power structure was being dismantled by the gospel of the kingdom and their own rule would not stand in the presence of the resurrected and ascended Christ who rules and reigns 
over all creation. That's why they were disturbed. They could see the handwriting on the wall. And they understood that this Christ is preached and this Christ is really who they proclaim him to be, then we will lose our kingdom, we will lose our power, we will lose our influence, and we cannot have that happen. That wasn't new to Sadducees. That's not new to us today. That is the sinfulness of humanity since the beginning of creation. It's exactly why Adam chose to disobey God instead of obeying his word. It's why the first Adam did not step in and save his bride like the second Adam did. When Jesus was offered all the kingdoms of the world, he, he refused them because he knew that they would eventually belong to him because he understood what he was going to do in the cross and in the cross and in the resurrection and in his ascension to the Father, he has already brought to nothing all the kingdoms of this world. We just don't see it physically, but we know it's true because this is what the Scripture teaches us. All things have been placed under him. All authority is placed under him. We don't see all things placed under him, the writer of Hebrews tells us, but we see Jesus. We see Jesus. The gospel proclaims the eternal rule and reign of Jesus. Just as then men now must embrace his rule or they must rebel against it. As the people of God, we must embrace his rule and we must proclaim it in such a way that men will choose Jesus as Lord or else they must rebel against him. There is no neutral ground. We proclaim the gospel in love knowing men have no other hope. Do you realize that, church? People are worried about offending the world. Well, if I go out preaching the gospel, I'm going to offend somebody. We need a revelation of where men are, where they stand without the gospel. They are dead. They are doomed. And only the gospel can save them. That's why proclaiming the gospel boldly is really, it's an act of love. Because men have no other hope. And we must never avoid this reality in our proclamation of the gospel. The love of God should motivate us to boldly proclaim his gospel. We come to verses 5 through 12 here in Acts chapter 4. And we see in these verses that the Sadducees, the Sadducees are... Coming together, they've arrested Peter and John. It's late in the evening. It's almost the next day, and so they imprison them. And the next day, all the rulers, all the elders, as well as, as, well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, is that name familiar? That is, that is the man who oversaw and made sure that Jesus would be crucified. So these are the guys gathered together with Peter and John, the same people that brought about what was thought to be the demise of Jesus, but it was not. These are the same guys with Peter and John. And Peter and John are there, and they're being questioned by them. Remember I said the gospel always requires and elicits a response. This is the response to the powers that be that came from Peter and John. And the Bible says of Peter that when he responded to them, those men, those rulers saw that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. It says, Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit spoke with boldness. And it says, those men marveled our response to the powers that be must come from the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. The question asked of Peter, by what power or by what name have you done this, is a question still being asked today by those led by the Spirit of truth. That's the question men are going to ask you today. And Peter answered them out of the resource of the Holy Spirit that filled him. And the Holy Spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost so that God's people would walk in the spirit of truth and in power 
and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That Holy Spirit poured out that day is the very same Holy Spirit that dwells in us today. We are to live our lives under the influence and the control of the Holy Spirit to the glory of Jesus' name. And too many responses today are given out of the fear of man instead of the fear of God. Instead of being filled with the Holy Spirit, many who profess the Lord today are filled with the spirit of this world and the lust of the flesh as manifest in their life. Are we to go, we are to go into this world filled with the Holy Spirit, boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus and the truth of the gospel in the power of the Spirit. As the people of God, we are to reject the spirit of this world and the fear of man. Peter boldly proclaimed the name of Jesus. He said, let it be known to you all that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, by this, this man stands before you whole. And everyone and everything must align with Jesus. Do you realize that? This is what the preaching of the gospel do. It, it reveals what aligns with Jesus and what does not align with Jesus. And in time, God will bring everything into alignment with Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected who has become the chief cornerstone, the head of the corner. Peter makes it crystal clear that there is salvation in no other name, only in the name of Jesus must men be saved. This is what a cornerstone does. It aligns all the other stones. And the Bible says that we are living, lively stones being built up into a holy habitation, the house of God. And Jesus is our chief cornerstone. And the Bible says, when these Sadducees, when these rulers saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, and untrained men. Now what that means, or what that doesn't mean, is that Peter and John were illiterate. They were not. They could read the scripture. What that means is that they were not formally trained. The boldness of a spirit-filled life comes through the presence of Jesus. It does not come through a formal education or training. They saw the boldness of Peter and John in marble. It's not that Peter and John were illiterate. They were not. But they had no formal education. They had no formal training in the scriptures. They had never been to what we would call a seminary today. So they had no credentials that were recognized by these religious rulers. You see this in the ministry of Jesus when Jesus is asked, by whose authority do you do this? And really what the rabbis are asking Jesus is, who's your rabbi? Who taught you? Who trained you? By whose authority are you doing these things? And Jesus would never answer them. When they asked him about it, he said, well, let me ask you a question. By whose authority did John do what he did? And they said, oh, we can't answer that question because we know the people think John came from God. And if we say we don't believe John came from God, then the people are going to be against us. And we can't have the people being against us because if the people are against us, then we'll lose our power. He said for them, for those Sadducees, for those rulers, it was not about trusting in Jesus or not. It was not about finding the truth. It was about maintaining their power and their position. And the boldness of Peter and John was a marvel to these learned men who were rich in knowledge but bankrupt in faith. These men who were rulers, elders, and scribes knew the Scriptures, but they did not know Jesus. Peter and John knew Jesus. In fact, they lived and moved and had their very being in Jesus, which is why they were able to do what they did. And the testimony of the apostles is that they had been with Jesus. This must become our testimony, whether we have formal training or not. The apostles of Jesus, save Paul, had no formal education or training in the Scripture. Though we should pursue and value education and training, don't hear what I'm not saying. Education is very important. Training is very important. We should strive to be educated people. And there are lots of ways we can be educated. And there are lots of things in which we can be educated and receive an education in. 
But no amount of training, no education is a substitute for being with Jesus. There is no degree that can save us. There is no degree or training that can give us the Holy Spirit. Yet having salvation in the Holy Spirit is not an excuse to remain ignorant, uneducated, or untrained. We have endless opportunities at our fingertips to learn and to grow and to become educated. We are to grow up in all things into Christ, the Scripture teaches us, especially in the grace and the knowledge of Him. And this will only happen as we abide in Him and in His Word or as we spend time in the presence of Jesus. Our boldness and our ability to proclaim the gospel with power will come only from being with Jesus. So as we spend time in His Word and in prayer, trusting His Spirit to teach and to illuminate the truth, we will grow and we will walk in greater boldness to proclaim the gospel of Christ. If obeying God means disobeying man, then we must be willing to do what is right in the sight of God, even if it means paying the price. This is what Peter and John told those officials. They said, we command you to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they said, you tell us, is it better? Is it better to, to, to obey man or to obey God? It's better to obey God. Amen? And so they did, and they continued preaching in the name of Jesus, and they took their licks, literally, and they left that place, and they left rejoicing. Verse 23 says, And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard, when those other disciples heard what had happened to them, Guess what they didn't do? They didn't get mad. They didn't form another political party. They didn't decide to go out and, and uh, storm the Sanhedrin. It says, when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the mouth of your servant David has said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? Vain things. What man plans against God is a vain thing because man will never overthrow God and man will never overthrow his gospel. And the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, here's a mystery. Sometimes I ask people, what's the greatest crime that's ever been committed? Nine out of ten times, the people tell me the Holocaust. Today, we live in a world where many people don't even believe there ever was a Holocaust. Just read an article about a teacher in Florida. They wouldn't teach the Holocaust in requirement. It was an elective class that students could go to, and a mother was alarmed. Why, why is teaching the Holocaust a, a choice? And the answer of the teacher was, because not everybody believes the Holocaust existed. And it's offensive to those who don't believe the Holocaust really took place. So we can't teach the Holocaust because it would offend some people who don't believe it really happened. That didn't happen somewhere in the Middle East. That happened in Florida, USA. We better wake up, church. Better wake up. greatest crime that ever took place was the murder of the Son of God. And right here, it says God ordained that murder. It was the purpose of God, it was the plan of God for those lawless, murderous men to crucify Jesus. And thank God it was His plan because of that plan, you and I will not suffer His wrath if we are trusting in Jesus. But those men who murdered Jesus murdered him willingly, wantingly, and they took great pleasure in it. And they were judged for it as well. The response of the disciples was to declare God's praise, God's purpose, and God's providence in prayer. They prayed, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness 
they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Notice they didn't say by stretching out our hand to heal because they realized their hand had no healing power. It was the hand of God that would bring healing, not just in our bodies, not just in our minds, but in our spirits to make us whole. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. That may not happen today when we pray in this place. But we should be in a position spiritually prepared and willing for anything to happen. Could God shake a building today? He did it twice in California this week. I don't know if they were praying when he shook it, but I bet they were praying after he shook it. Look what it says. It says the place was shaken, the place where they were all assembled. They were all assembled together just like we are here today. God works through his corporate body. Yes, God works through you individually, but you are part of a body. My hand doesn't work unless it's connected to my body. My hand is not my foot. It's not my ear. It's not my nose. It's not my elbow. It's not my knee. My hand is my hand, but my hand can't work by itself. It has to be connected to a body to work. God works through his corporate body. This is why we are commanded to not forsake assembling together. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This isn't the first time they were filled. That's why I drew the little picture of the boat with the sail. This is how we are to be filled. We're not, yeah, we can be filled like a bucket in a cup. Yes, we can. But when we think of being filled with the Spirit like a bucket or a cup, we also think about us leaking. This. It's like, oh, all the Spirit's gone. Now I need to get some more Spirit in me. Please, please abandon that heretical line of thinking because that is not true. The Spirit never leaves you. It never leaks out of you. It never forsakes you because if the Spirit can leak out of you, if the Spirit can leave you and the Spirit can forsake you and dissipate from you, then so will Jesus. And Jesus has promised He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And how does Jesus eternally live and abide in us? He eternally lives and abides in us by His Spirit. His Spirit is not going to leave you if you are His. If you're not His, you might think you have the Spirit, but it might not be the Spirit you think you have. This is why John writes and says, test the spirits to see whether they be of God. But if you have the Holy Spirit, it's not the Spirit leaking out of you and being filled is not a one-time event. Being filled is a continuous event. And that's the way the language in the Greek presents it. We are to be continuously filled with the Spirit. The same way a ship should have its sails continuously filled with wind, driving it to the destination that God would have for it. And that's how we're going to come to the destinations God has for us. And the ultimate destination is to be conformed to the image of the Son. And it is the filling of the Spirit that gets us to that conforming to the Son. They were all filled with the Spirit. God empowers His body by His Spirit. They all spoke the Word of God with boldness. This, church, is the sign that we are filled with the Spirit it's our ability and our willingness and our courage to speak the Word of God with boldness. To proclaim the gospel and to be witnesses to Christ. To be filled is to live surrendered to the power of the Spirit. That's what that means. If you're filled with the Spirit, that means you're, you're under the control and the influence of the Spirit. If you say, I'm, I'm filled with the Spirit, that's what you're professing. You might not understand that's what you're professing. But that's what that really means. And the sign of our being filled with the Spirit, being under the influence and control of the Spirit, is our ability and our willingness to proclaim the gospel and to be used by God however He chooses to use us. 
And the implication is that they all went out and spoke the word of God with boldness to all that they came in contact with. They didn't just simply speak with boldness to one another inside the church building. No, they were filled with the Spirit, and they went out and spoke the word of God with boldness. Each of those disciples carried the gospel outside the walls of the church and into the world, and they spoke the word of God with boldness because they could not keep silent. So what's our excuse today? We have the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, Romans 8, 11. We have the same spirit that filled and empowered Christ's disciples. Same spirit that fell on the Jews, fell on the Samaritans, fell on the Gentiles. Same spirit that is in us today if we belong to Jesus. The problem cannot be with the spirit. Therefore, we must consider ourselves and one another. Are we too distracted by lesser things? Have we grown too apathetic? Have we lost our sense of urgency for men's souls? I dare say none of us would say we don't care about men's souls. We would all profess that we do. But I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm going to point to myself first. I have to ask myself as I prepared this message today, how much do I really care about men's souls? I get up and preach almost every week here at Christ Fellowship Church, and I proclaim the gospel. And it's easy for me to say, well, I care a lot about men's souls because I preach the gospel every week. But I would be lying to myself if that was really the true measure of how much I care for men's souls. I do care for your souls. But if you haven't noticed, there's a lot of people not in church today. Many people we don't know. And it's not that they're not in church here. They're not in church anywhere. In fact, statistics tell us they're leaving churches by the droves. Has the Spirit lost its power? Has God fallen asleep on His throne? What's happened? Well, you know better than that. What's happened is the church has abandoned the gospel. And now the preaching of the gospel is something that people in America who are once used to, they're not used to that anymore. It's foreign to them. It's almost as if we're living in a foreign country now. We used to send people to other parts of the world to evangelize as missionaries. You know what other parts of the world are doing now? You know what the Chinese are doing and the Africans are doing and the Asians are doing? They're sending people to America to evangelize America because looking at America from other countries in the world, they see the darkness that has descended upon the church in America. And America has become one of the ripest mission fields in the world. And here we are, the church in America, and we can't see it because we're blind to it. Well, I'm here to wake you up this morning. The Spirit moves us. We do not move the Spirit. But we must be ready when the Spirit moves. That means we must be equipped and willing to follow the Spirit's leading in His timing. Proclaiming the gospel is a matter of obedience. It's not a matter of seeking the Spirit. You don't have to ask permission to proclaim the gospel. You've already been commanded by Jesus. We commonly speak of sharing the gospel. I just read an article this week talking about this. and I thought it was so interesting. We talk about sharing the gospel, but our commission is to preach the gospel. We're nowhere commanded to share the gospel. Say, well, you sound like you're being a little picky, Pastor Jeff. Think about this. We share our ice cream if someone wants some. We share our pizza if someone wants some, or our potato chips. We share our photos if someone wants to see them. We share our food and drink if someone is hungry and thirsty and wants to partake with us. We're commanded to preach and to proclaim the gospel. We're not commanded to share the gospel. There's a difference. Sharing implies we do so based on the other person's willingness to partake. I'll tell you the gospel if you want to hear it, but if you don't, then I won't. Proclaiming and preaching the gospel is not about someone who wants to hear the message. It's about someone who needs to hear the message. Do you understand the difference? There's a difference. 
You don't throw a drowning man a life preserver because he wants it. You throw a man a life preserver because he needs it, because his life depends on it. And that's the very same way we should think about proclaiming the gospel. We proclaim the gospel because men's lives depend on it. We cannot and we should not force anyone to hear the gospel, and we can't make them receive the gospel, but we are to lovingly and boldly proclaim it to them. We had a great discussion on Wednesday night about should we have altar calls or should we not have altar calls in the church? And I typically don't give an altar call every, every Sunday morning. I preach the gospel every Sunday morning because it's not my ability to convince you to believe in Jesus. It's the power of God. It's the power of the gospel that must break through the hardness of your heart. In a sense, we have an altar call every time we come to the table. We're going to come to the table today. This is why we do communion every week. Communion is for those who trust in Jesus. It's for those who are covenant members of the body who have professed that they are those covenant members. And in you coming to the table, you are professing you trust in Jesus if you're an adult. We allow children to come to the table because we count children as members of the covenant if they are children of covenant families, of parents who have professed faith in Jesus. Because we're trusting that just like kids sit at a table and learn to eat macaroni and cheese with a fork and a spoon at home, they're learning how to eat at this table, being raised up in the fear and nurture of the Lord. So I thought of this analogy because a lot of churches are focusing their attention trying to draw the lost into the church. But this is not what Jesus has commanded us to do. This is not what Peter and John did. Peter and John went out and they preached the gospel. Sometimes it was planned. In this episode, in Acts chapter 3 and 4, it was not planned. They were going to prayer and they end up preaching the gospel and getting arrested. And then they come back with their other companions and they pray for more boldness to go out and preach even more boldly to those who need to hear the message. So I thought about this analogy. You don't throw a pool party to rescue the drowning. Focusing on evangelism on Sunday morning is like having a pool party for the purpose of rescuing people from drowning. That's not why you have a pool party, right? We don't invite people who do not know how to swim to the pool so we can save them from drowning. We should invite all sorts of people to our pool party, not only those who know how to swim, but everybody, right? If we know someone does not know how to swim, we should pay attention to that person so that they don't drown. In fact, we watch all people and we rescue as needed, but that's not why we're gathering at the pool. We can use the pool to teach people how to swim, but we should not but we should do that, and we should do that, especially with our children, right? We can use the pool to teach people how to swim, but that's not why we had the pool party to begin with. We didn't have it to rescue people from drowning. At the foundation, we throw a pool party to build relationship. We gather together every Sunday to build and to strengthen relationship with one another and with God. We affirm the covenant with God and with one another in all that we do as we gather here. And we can, we can and we should learn to swim in the process. That's a benefit. We don't have the pool party to rescue people from drowning. Evangelism happens outside the church. That's where it should mostly happen. It can happen inside the church, absolutely. Absolutely. If you're not trusting in Jesus right now, I command you in the name of Jesus to trust him. That's what the gospel says we must do. But whether you trust him or not is not going to be up to me. It's going to be up to you, up between you and God. Equipping happens within the church. People can be saved inside or out, but the church assembles primarily for the found, not the lost. The people of God, the found, assemble for three main purposes to worship God, to edify and provoke one another to love and good works, and to be equipped to go out to the lost of this world and preach the gospel, proclaim the message, make disciples, teaching them to obey. Our gathering here strengthens and builds relationship with God and with 
one another. We should seek to save men inside the church and outside the church. But you're here today primarily to be equipped to go back out into the world and proclaim the gospel and gather them to come in. I beg you to please see this and to understand this so that our nation will find its hope not in politics, not in military might, not in psychology, not in anything that man can do, but our nation would find its hope in Jesus, that you would find your hope in Jesus. You got saved in a church, praise God for that. If you're not saved today, I hope you get saved today. I hope you trust in Jesus today. But please don't wait for Sunday morning to be the place that you evangelize. Take Jesus out into the world where people are drowning in their sin and in their death and rescue them with the gospel. Amen? I want us to get ready to come to the table. You're all invited if you have trusted in Jesus. Your children are covenant children. They're invited. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, trust in Jesus right now. There's not a formula for salvation. There's a name for salvation. It's the name of Jesus. And if you call upon that name and if you trust in him, you will be saved. Church, come to the table. We'll all take the elements together. Let's all stand. Here's your charge. We've talked a lot as we've been in the book of Acts about a spirit-filled life. And a spirit-filled life is less about our experience and the big events that occasionally occur. And it is overwhelmingly about our obedience and the small details that constantly occur throughout our daily living. As we commit to be faithful in the small things, God has promised to lead us in the power of His Spirit in all things both great and small. And we must desire to boldly speak His Word and so proclaim His Gospel to the world in great ways and in small ways, in ways seen and ways unseen, in ways heard through our words and ways unspoken. We must become a people, not just Christ's fellowship, but the body of Christ in this nation but we can start right here with each one of us. We must become a people filled with the Spirit, driven by the power of the Spirit to go and to preach the gospel of Christ, the only hope that men have. And we must do that for His glory and in our obedience, for Jesus has commanded so. Amen.